So here's the Christian life in a nutshell. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a beautiful testimony that Paul wrote in talking to the Galatian believers. That's the Christian life in a nutshell. It's a Christ life. We Christians have been redeemed by Christ to live as the people of Christ according to the pattern of Christ and by the power of Christ. We have not been redeemed and left here alone to work it out on our own. The pattern of Christ goes before us and the power of Christ dwells within us through his Holy Spirit. The Christian life is lived out every day in every endeavor and every relationship and every decision. Every decision, big and small. Every decision. Now, researchers at Cornell University estimate that the average adult in this room makes about 35,000 decisions every day. Imagine that, 35,000 decisions, little decisions to big decisions. And the Christian life is lived out through those decisions, 35,000 decisions. No wonder we hit the pillow exhausted every night. Whew. Now, the vast majority of those decisions involve things that are neither right nor wrong in and of themselves. And this is our fifth week studying some of the guiding principles that help us make decisions as Christians. And Paul has been addressing um, one of the decisions that the Christians in ancient Corinth had to make on a daily basis. They faced an issue that we don't necessarily face specifically, but we do in principle every day. Their decision was so basic that it involved the very food that they ate. It was the issue of food that had been offered to idols in pagan temples, specifically meat. And um, the Christians, when they would go to the marketplace, that food would be there. When they had their local apple blossom festival, there would be vendors there from the pagan temples. The food would be offered in local celebrations. And Christians were faced with this decision all the time. Should they eat food offered to idols or not? And Paul has been addressing this issue. Now, the Christians at Corinth uh, had a spiritual pride problem. They thought that they were all that, and as the 80s saying used to go, all that, and a bag of chips. They thought they were something else. They thought that they were spiritual people, spiritually mature, and they could handle anything. They thought they were kind of above all the riffraff here. And so they thought that they had the freedom to eat this idol food and to attend these sacrificial feasts because, after all, idols are nothing, and it's just food. But in chapter 8 through 10 of 1 Corinthians, Paul has been explaining that they should not eat food offered to idols or attend the meals that are being served at the local temple, and he brings in five different angles on this particular subject. How many of you have been here for the past four weeks when we have been studying this. I've been here for all four. This is the fifth week. Raise your hand. Come on, hold them up. How many of you have been here for at least uh, two or three out of the four? Great. I got a little pop quiz for you this morning. 
you'll notice on the back of your bulletin that uh, I did not fill out the answers to all five of our considerations because I wonder if you remember any of them. I want you to sign your name and turn these in at the... No, not at all, but take a stab at it. We have been studying this same issue now for four weeks. This is week number five. And each week we have repeated the same things about these considerations that Paul brings to the table. He says, consider this, consider this, consider this. And now he's up to number five. Do you remember any of the former four? Take a moment. Go ahead. You might even open your... Don't check your notes, some of you. Jill, I see you. You can look at your Bibles. The... the the text is right there, chapter 8, chapter 9, and then three sections in chapter 10. Pop quiz. All right, I won't take any longer. For the past four weeks, Paul has been coming at this issue, this important issue, from four different angles. And though we don't deal with food offered to idols, we do make decisions every day that are not explicitly wrong. But as I uh, encouraged you from the very first of these five sermons, the subtitle of this is sort of like this. Why something that is not inherently wrong might not be right for you. Or, or maybe better yet, Things that are more important than your freedom. Because we often feel like, well, I have the freedom to do this. Just like the Corinthians said, I have the freedom to do this. I can go to the local temple and take my wife and family to this meal. It's no big deal. It's just meat. It's, these are stupid idols. They're not real. And so Paul is giving five considerations, five things that are more important than your freedom. And number one, he says, consider your weaker brothers. Some people used to be pagan worshipers. They used to go to those very temples, and they're your brothers and sisters in Christ now. And every time you go there, you're confusing them because you're going right back where they have come out of. So love your brother more than your freedom. That was chapter 8. Chapter 9, he says, consider our mission. Look, folks, we're on mission here. God just didn't leave us on earth to bide our time. He sent us on a mission with the gospel of Jesus. And so what I'm encouraging you to do is lay aside your freedom for the sake of the gospel mission. Yes, you might have the freedom to do some things, but sometimes it's better to lay aside your freedom because you can accomplish more for the gospel with that freedom. That was chap chapter 9. Then in chapter 10, 1 through 13, he said, consider the temptations to sin here. You think you're above these temptations to sin, but I assure you you're not. And we have a couple of thousand years worth of Israel's history to prove it. Those who think they stand, take heed lest you fall. Remember that in chapter 10? So consider the temptations to sin and be careful that your freedom doesn't lead you to sin. Last week, in the middle of chapter 10, consideration number four, he said, consider religious associations. What you're doing at the temple... Going to their meal is just like what you do at the Lord's Supper. You're going to their table, you're drinking their cup, you're sac you are uh, receiving the sacrifice of their God. It's just like your Lord's Supper, and you are approving of it and entering into it. Do you remember the key word? You are participating with the God being honored and the community represented. So be sure that your freedom isn't participation in false religion. Now, week 5.5, last one, consider the circumstances. Because you're right. It is just meat. And sometimes you don't even know 
And you know, I love this text because basically Paul is going to tell us today, Christians, you don't have to live in fear that you're always constantly worried about doing something wrong. You have a great freedom from Christ. You don't don't have to worry about this stuff. But when it's obvious, when the circumstances are obvious, then govern your freedom specifically by the good of others and the glory of God. Govern your freedom by the good of others and the glory of God. So five things that are more important than your freedom and fellow decision makers, fellow Christians, this is really practical for us. Let me ask you, what kinds of decisions have you been facing recently? What kinds of things are on your docket right now? What are those issues or those decisions that you have today that are neither specifically right or wrong, but they're just one of those areas where you need wisdom. Well, here are five considerations for us. Consider your weaker brothers. Consider our gospel mission. Consider temptations to sin. Consider any religious associations. And then consider the circumstances today. And as we conclude Paul's teaching on this food offered to idols thing... My prayer is that we would be driven by an insatiable desire to glorify God and display the gospel of Christ in everything that we do. Can I say that again? My goal for this sermon from this text is that every Christian in this room will be driven by an insatiable desire to glorify God and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in everything that you do. Wouldn't that be beautiful? We have the pattern and power of Christ for it, friends. This is what we've been redeemed for. Soli Deo Gloria. To the glory of God alone. All right, let's read our sermon text. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's the last one in this little section where Paul next week is going to move on to a different topic. Actually, next week, we're going to have a special uh, worship service here, Lord willing. But um, uh, we'll pick this up in two weeks. I'll tell you about that worship service later. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is our sermon text for today, beginning at verse 23, going all the way down through the very unfortunate chapter break. (laughs) Uh, John Calvin called this an absurd chapter break. (laughs) I got you, man. I'm with you. So unfortunate. So this text actually ends in chapter 11, verse 1. And that's where the chapter break should be at verse 2. Uninspired numbers. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. All things are lawful, but all things, pardon me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I I do not mean your conscience, but his For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, 
do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's God's word. Amen. So point number five in Paul's five-point sermon on and guiding principles for food offered to idols. Paul begins here by establishing the overarching principle. Look in verse 23 and 24. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Here's the point. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Paul's point is this, Christian. Christian, you have the freedom to participate in things that are not wrong in and of themselves. Freedom. But the gospel of Christ calls you to govern your freedom by the good of others. See, what he's doing here in verse 23 is he's reiterating a slogan that the Corinthian Christians apparently used. We have already seen this slogan one other time. Do you remember it in chapter 6, verse 12? All things are lawful with their arrogant, spiritual, super mature selves. They're like, all things are lawful. Paul's like, all things are lawful, but let me put a restriction on that. Let me help you understand that a bit better. Let's put a governor on this so that we don't go out of control down the hill. The governor is this. All things are lawful, but not everything is helpful. <laughs> and not everything is going to build up others. And here's the overriding principle that he wants to put on here. Number five, to cap off his thing, is this, that you have the freedom to participate in things that are not wrong in and of themselves, but you should govern your freedom by the good of others. Always by the good to build up others. Let's take both of the sides of that coin just for a moment. Christians, you have the freedom to participate in things that are not wrong in and of themselves. Do you know how many things there are that are not wrong in and of themselves? We've got a world full of them. But I'm afraid that some of us walk around so scared of doing something wrong that we don't enjoy life. And I remember being one of those kinds of Christians. There was a time in my life, just if you don't mind me telling just a, a brief little story here. I grew up in the kind of church that had rules for everything. And there was teaching on music that now I understand to be ridiculous. But back then, boy, you know, the people that I really trusted were telling me uh, these things about music. And basically what it was, was that all the music that I liked was wrong and sinful and evil. And all of the music that I didn't like was holy and God honoring. And so because the bad music is what I liked and the good music is what I didn't like, then I just decided what? I'm just going to give up music completely. I just forget it. I, I retreated into my shell. And, and that little example, I'm afraid, is true of many of us. Here we are in the world and we have just basically sequestered into this sh little shell of, I don't want to do anything wrong. There's so much evil out there. And friends, the evil isn't necessarily out there. It's in here. And we have the freedom to enjoy life, art, nature. Sure, some people make nature into a god, but you don't have to. You can enjoy it. 
Yes, there's a thing called gluttony, but you know what? You can worship God through ice cream if you want to. I do it just about every Sunday night at Dairy Corner. You can join me if you'd like. Man, we can worship. We have the freedom to enjoy the things that God has given. But consider the circumstances. There's some times when you need to govern your freedom based on the good of somebody else. Look at verse 24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Boy, that's the gospel right there, isn't it? Isn't that what Jesus has done for us? Isn't that the mission of Jesus in a nutshell? Jesus did not seek his own good. Jesus sought and accomplished our greatest good through the sacrifice and suffering of the cross. And so Jesus' people are sent out on a mission to do good to others, to love others more than self to actually care more about your good in the moment than my good. And so we seek not my own good, but the good of our neighbors. The gospel of Christ calls us to govern our freedom by the good of others. And notice that's defined in three ways in these first two verses. What does it look like? It looks like Asking yourself the question, is this helpful for the other person? It might be a freedom for you, but is it helpful for the other person? The word there is profitable. Is this going to profit them or is it somehow going to take away from them? The second question you might want to ask is, does this build up the other person? Or does this build up the community of the church? Because all things are lawful, but not everything builds up. Back in chapter 8, verse 1, we found that knowledge builds up. but I mean, pardon me, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Solid construction. So Christians, what we do is to build up others individually and to build up the body of Christ. That's how we're to use our freedom. Maybe a third thing that it's defined here in, in verse 24. Am I seeking the good of this other person or my own good right now? Oh, man. You know, Paul said to the church at Rome, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the, the commandments, like the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covenant, and any other commandment, they're all summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then he defines it. This is a beautiful verse. What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. And therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Because you don't. Murder, steal, covet, defraud, lie, etc. So Paul makes this point. Christians, you have the freedom to participate in things that are not wrong in and of themselves, but the gospel of Christ calls you to govern your freedom. Then he gets really practical with them. He gives them three practical examples. Notice in verse 25 through 30. Three practical examples about this issue of food offered to idols. And what I want to tell you from the very beginning is Paul knows what a pervasive deal this is for them. He wants to emphasize freedom here. Two of the three examples, he says, eat, eat. He's trying to free us up, not to walk around with religious shackles on, but to exercise our freedom in Christ. 
Situation number one, verse 25 and verse 26. Eat whatever is sold in the market. But Paul, meat offered to idols is sold in the market? He goes, I know. Eat, look, eat whatever is sold in the market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Why? For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You know, by the way, that comes from Psalms. That was one of the, the main prayers uh, of Jews that they would recite before the meal. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. Thank you for your provision for us. Listen, everything belongs to the Lord. This is his provision for you. Go to the market, buy the meat. Don't ask questions. You don't need to research the history and the source of the meat. Just buy meat. Obviously, they didn't have labels. Because if it said, meat offered to idols, Paul would have said what? Don't eat it. This is not a gray area. But it's also not an area of fear. You don't have to be afraid. We're sinners in a sinful world, but we have freedom in Christ. Man, Jesus is Lord over every cow and goat. And God has given it to us for our enjoyment now. Eat. It's okay. But, but Paul, but Paul. I have a really good relationship with my neighbor, and sometimes I go over to my neighbor's house, and I don't know if, are, if he has meat offered to idol. Okay, situation number two, verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you. Don't ask any questions on the ground of conscience. I think that's great, don't you? If it's obvious, don't do it. But you don't have to become a Pharisee that digs into the history and the source of every barbecue. And that's what the Pharisees did. And I'm afraid that that's what a lot of Christians do too. You can eat the meat sold in the market. You can eat dinner with unbelievers. In fact, you're called to. You talk about the pattern of Jesus. What did Jesus do? He ate dinner with unbelievers all the time. Question, do you? Eat the meal. Enjoy the meal. There's no need to do any research. But then everything changes in verse 28. Why? Because the situation gets obvious with religious significance. See, Paul's not talking about an issue that's super, super hard to figure out. He says you're over at your neighbor's house. You're about to enjoy the meal. And verse 28 happens. And he knows this is a reality for them. So verse 28, situation number three. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice. Then do not eat it. Why? For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Now, I don't mean your conscience, but his. Situation number three do not eat if there is an obvious religious significance. Just like going to the temple and having dinner, it's the temple. <laughs> it's pagan worship. Just like enjoying apple blossom, but then there's the, the particular event that's sponsored by pride. Okay, there's an obvious religious connection here. There's an obvious... Don't eat the meal. Why? For the sake, do you see that? Verse 28, and then and again, verse 29, for the sake, not you, of the one who informed you. So who informed this question? There's a lot of debate about this, but I think it's obviously one of three people, probably the host, right? You're at this unbeliever's house. I think it's great that Christians are at an unbeliever's house. Uh, the host, 
who's likely an idol worshiper, just a typical Greek person in Corinth. And uh, he announces, quote, this has been offered in sacrifice. And by the way, the behind the scenes Greek language there, they're using a phrase that a pagan worshiper would have used. They're not using the kind of language that a Christian would say about the worthless idol. So this sounds like it's the host saying what hosts would say. This is a meal that has been sacrificed to idols. Now, why would anybody do that? All right, those of you who know your Old Testament will know that that happened very often in every Jewish home. If, if you, as a, uh, a child of Israel, a Jew, wanted to make a peace offering, you would take the lamb, the goat, you would take it to the temple, the peace offering would be sacrificed, and then three things happened. A portion of it was burnt and sacrificed to God. A second portion of it was given to the priest for him and his family. And a third portion of it went where? Back home with you for your family. And do you think that was just a normal meal? This was a peace offering. Do you know what peace offerings celebrate? Shalom, peace. This is a thanksgiving to God for his Shalom. Thank you, God, that you have provided all things for us. So fathers would stand over this peace offering and say, kids, we're about to enjoy a portion of the peace offering that was sacrificed in the tabernacle or the temple today. Let's join hands and give thanks to our God, the God of Shalom. And by eating the meal, you're celebrating what? The God of Shalom. And so here at your neighbor's house, he does the same thing. He says, this meal has been offered in sacrifice. There's religious significance. What if he said, let's join hands and thank Athena. Let's join hands and thank Apollo. Let's join hands and praise Allah. What would you do? It's a whole different ball game, isn't it? This thing just got religious, and Paul says, Christian, you have a responsibility now. Your loyalty to Christ is on the line. If you join hands and bow your head, what you've just done is you bow your head to a false god, which is actually, last week's sermon, a demon. You're honoring. You're, you're... You say with your mouth, there is one true and living God. But now you've compromised that. See what I mean? You've condoned idolatrous worship. And not eating makes a clear statement. Okay, now, is this going to be awkward? Oh, yeah. You better believe it. What did Jesus say about living in a, a world where most people hate him? If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Now, you don't have to be a jerk about it. You don't have to go, whoa, hey, I'm out. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, come on. Grace, truth, love. If you knew about it ahead of time, you shouldn't have been there in the first place. But now that you're there, Oh, just be so gracious. Just so be so kind. You're creative. Figure something out. Excuse yourself. But don't eat. Then do not eat it. Why? For the sake not of you. It's not like you're going to get possessed by demons because of this stuff. No, no, no. For the sake of the person who informed you. So likely the host who has just declared this a religious event. Maybe another Christian at the dinner 
I thought this was an interesting perspective, never occurred to me, might have been one of the servants at the meal who, when he comes to serve you, says, this has been offered to idols. Now, why would that servant say that? Because that servant knows you shouldn't do this. And if you're like, oh, forget it, it's okay. Just give me the burger. Don't eat it for his conscience, for his sake. Or it might be one of your weaker brothers who knows what's happening and who leans over to you and says, the words he just said was a prayer to whatever God, and I, I have to leave. You're like, okay, sorry, see you later. I'm staying because I don't want to be embarrassed. This is a time when Jesus is calling us to love him and our brothers and sisters more than our freedom, more than the awkwardness, the fear of man that's welling up in our souls. See, this is not some super hard issue. Paul says, you're right, it's just meat. If you don't know it's been offered to idols, eat it, enjoy it. But if it has religious significance, don't eat it. Then verse 29b and 30, commentators claim that this is one of the most difficult passages of Scripture. Like, what in the world? Did you read this this week? And you're like, wait, did he just contradict everything that he just said? Paul says, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's? I thought you just told me I'm supposed to. Like, for the sake of his, what are you in the world? And then he says in verse 30, if I partake of this meal with thankfulness, then why am I being denounced or judged because of that for which I give thanks? And you're like, Paul, wait, I think you just contradicted everything that you said there. Well, it does feel that way. And so there have been lots of lots of wranglings and hagglings over what these two verses mean. Let me just present two views that I think are really logical, really plausible. Uh, the first view is that what Paul does here is what he does in many other places. He presents two objections that he knows the, the uh, Corinthians are thinking. Just like he started with them, uh, all things are lawful. Then he's down here saying, uh, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? That, that sort of thing. The problem is, at the top, he says all things are lawful, but, and then he says why it's not. Okay? In this one, he doesn't answer them. He doesn't give the balancing side of the equation. It just sounds like he makes the point. And so I like this view better. There's like six widely held views. I won't take your time. I like this view better. This is the one I think it is. That rather than objections, Paul is presenting rhetorical questions. And he has done that all throughout the letter so far. He asks them questions and then lets it just sit there. Consider that. These are rhetorical questions. Why should your liberty, why should your liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Why? Because let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. That's why. Uh, verse 30. Look, if I partake of this meal with thankfulness, you know, could be an objection. Or Paul is saying, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I being denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Think about that. Would, would there be any reason for that? MacArthur gives an answer to that one that I thought was helpful. Our own freedom should not be judged by another's conscience. That is, we should not cause our freedom to be slandered by expressing it in ways that offend a weaker brother. We should give thanks for the food and for our liberty and then express our liberty by not choosing to eat the food the food that offends my brother. How can we be thankful to the Lord for something a Christian brother or sister is going to stumble over? So I think the best uh, view here is that they are rhetorical questions, and Paul is giving a sustained argument, 
And he's asking them to consider this. And his answers are all throughout the text rather than a contradiction to it. All right, three practical examples. And Paul's final point, number five, is what? Govern your freedom based on, verse 24, the good of others. Govern your freedom based on the good of others. Five points. And so then, as a good preacher, good writer, what does Paul do next? Verse 31 through through 11.1, he summarizes his entire argument. All of chapter 8, 9, and 10, he summarizes in verse 31 and following. Let's read this again. So, I've just spent three chapters giving you five different views on this issue. So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking mine own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So, in summary, Paul says, bottom line here, he gives two guiding principles for the Christian life. And he said, this is how I live, and better than that, this is how Jesus lived. This is the pattern of Jesus. Do you see verse 11? Paul says, I'm imitating Christ, and I'm encouraging you to imitate me. Follow in my footsteps in this way. What were the guiding principles of Jesus' life? Number one, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Number two, whatever you do, do all to advance the gospel. All to the glory of God, all to advance the gospel. Those are the two great guiding principles of the Christian life. Guiding principle number one. So whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do you know that I was today years old? Not actually today. It was like, like about three weeks ago. Three weeks ago, years old, when I recognized that that was in the whole context of food offered to idols, I always thought it was just one of the greatest verses in the Bible. And I thought that it was just talking about the most mundane things of life. You know, whether you eat, whether you drink, do everything to the glory of God. Had no idea that Paul had just spent three chapters talking about eating and drinking. Anybody else? Like, I didn't know that before. Yeah, thank you very much. Appreciate the three people who are honest. The rest of you Bible scholars, you know. I'm telling you, man, I used to just rip little verses and out of context and put them on T-shirts and mugs all the time, you know. I had no idea. Look, it makes so much sense. What's he saying? The guiding principle here is this. From the smallest and most mundane things to the biggest decisions that you possibly make, the Christian life is fundamentally driven by the glory of God. John Calvin said, there is no action so minute that it ought not be directed to the glory of God. Eating and drinking are about as basic as you can get. It's what we do every day, some of us, too much. We eat and we drink. We eat at home, at work, in the car. The Cheerios on your floor prove it. And Paul says here, whether you do mundane things like eating and drinking or, what's the key word here? Whatever you do, the whole gambit of life, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So how can we eat and drink in a way that glorifies God? By seeing that what we eat and drink 
is a gift from God, and we receive it with thanksgiving by loving God more than those gifts that he gives us. Ah, by loving our brothers and sisters more than our freedom to eat and drink whatever we want to eat and drink. Or maybe by not eating and drinking because it would confuse the gospel of Christ and tarnish our witness to the glory of God. John Piper says, we are to eat and drink in a way that expresses the infinite worth of God. And friends, we can do that. Guiding principle number one, whatever you do, whatever you do, friends, just think about some of the things you do, some of your hobbies and pastimes, some of the things that you do at work, some of the things you love to do, some of the things you hate to do. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Flip that over. If it can't be done to the glory of God, then what? Don't do it. Paul says, that's how I live because that's how Christ lived. Christian, that's our marching orders. Guiding principle number two, whatever you do, do it all to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus lived on mission. He said, I can't do anything except for the will of God. And so in verse 32 and 33, Paul sums up this argument with a second guiding principle for every one of our lives, our relationships, our decisions, our conversations. Do it to the glory of God and do it to advance the gospel. This is how Jesus lived. So in verse 32 and 33, give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many. Why? That they may be saved. Who does Paul have in view here? Three kinds of people that represents what? Everyone. Jews, Greeks, those are like Corinthian people or people in Rome, whatever. Just people who aren't Jews. And then the church of God. Don't you think that's cool that he makes the church of God sort of a separate kind of people? Because both Jews and Greeks are now Christians. And he says, don't offend any of them. <laughs> you see that in verse 32? So who is in view? Jews, Greeks, everyone. What's the goal? Look at your Bibles. Tell me, what's the goal here? That they may be saved. How many? Many. Like everyone we can possibly help. You know why? Because heaven and hell are real. And sin has cursed all of us to death. And Jesus left us here with a great commission to go preach the gospel so that your kids and your neighbors and your co-workers can be saved too. The goal is that they may be saved. And look, that includes the church of God. So it's not just initial salvation, but it's the perseverance of the saints. It's making sure that your weaker brother perseveres instead of going back to pagan idol worship. So what are, how do we accomplish this goal? Look, look at the text. I suggest there's three verbs, and I'll do this quickly. Three verbs. Number one. Give no offense to any of them. Give no offense means don't cause them to stumble. Don't put a barrier in their way. Don't prevent them. So we advance the gospel with others by not doing anything that hinders the gospel, like eating food that's clearly a religious meal, right? That's what he's saying here. So sometimes the best way you can advance the gospel is by not hindering it. All right? Verse 33. He says, I try to please everyone. Oh, that's strange. I thought we were only supposed to please God, not try to please everyone. What does he mean? Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, namely, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many. So Paul is talking about serving them for their fill-in-the-blank 
good, for their spiritual good, so that they can understand the gospel. So we advance the gospel with others by seeking their spiritual good more than our own freedom. And he spent all of chapter 9 talking about this, and he ended chapter 9 by saying, I'm free from all, but I have made myself a servant to all so that I might win more of them. Then he names them, Jews and Greeks and the weaker brothers, those within the church, same three. He says, I have become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some and I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. So how do we accomplish this goal? We do it by not doing anything that hinders the gospel, and we do it by seeking the spiritual good of those that God puts into our sphere of influence. Guiding principle number one, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. And guiding principle number two, what? Whatever you do, do it to advance the gospel. And friends, that's the Christian life. The glory of God and the gospel of Christ. The glory of God and the gospel of Christ. Every day, every decision, every relationship, every conversation, the glory of God and the gospel of Christ. That's our true freedom. That's beautiful, isn't it? And my prayer is that every one of us in this room will have an insatiable desire to glorify God and advance the gospel of Jesus. Because that's the pattern of Jesus. And that is the call of the Christian life. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you that you were crucified in our place. I thank you that it is no longer we who live, but you who live in us. Lord Jesus, the life that we now live in the flesh, we live in a world that is full of decisions, but we live it by faith in you because you loved us and gave yourself for us. So we live to glorify you and advance your gospel. I pray that you would give us every day your grace to do that. And I pray that you would give us the joy of living out our freedoms to, the, to your glory. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.